0: military podcast when you decided to go into the air force was uh your initial step going into pararescue or did you go a different route initially
1: um yeah i did i went a, a different routes uh so i grew up in elkhart indiana close to south bend india indiana right outside of uh, the notre dame area and um I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do Um, the only thing I was sure of is that and this is probably even more important you don't always have to have all the answers but uh, if you know what you don't like then that can that can be a good steering factor for you and so I I knew I wasn't ready for college and I just went down one day and I um, I signed up at the recruiter and I initially tried to join the army Oh did you um, and it, I did. I tried to join the army. Um, and if you guys remember this, back then in 1988, they actually had a policy in place that if you were flat-footed, you couldn't get into the army. And so, you know, I, I was We remember I, that. Yeah, so I which I I didn't I was a young guy. I found it very bizarre because I was a wrestler, I was an athlete. I was actually, you know, captain of the wrestling team and and, um, but the recruiters like, Hey, I, I apologize just by the, the the way the mandate is right now and the regulations, we can't take anybody with flat feet. So I did a, I did a button hook right out of his office and I walked right next door to the air force recruiter. And I said, Hey, look at, um, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I know I don't want to stay in Indiana. I'd like to travel and, and uh, see what else is out there. Um, so you know um, i'm I'm athletic you know what do you have to offer and basically he said no problem we get you we get you signed up don't worry about the flat-footed thing Uh, you can come join the air force and i immediately signed up and um but he never said anything about pararescue so i didn't know about pararescue initially what i end up doing is he signed me up for uh security forces so i was i was a security forces guy um, for uh, those first couple of years basically my first two assignments out of the Air Force I was a, a security forces um, I, I I probably was the one class where the no, normally the way it's done is when you're going through basic training the indoc instructors come in and they they say hey is there anybody in this class it doesn't matter what your AFSC is your MOS or rate but for the Air Force it's AFSC you know that mm-hmm. um, so they come in and offer you a chance to try out for pararescue combat control uh, so I must've been sick that day or I never heard about that or they never, or they just missed our flight. So I never knew about it. And, uh, and I, and I went on to be a cop and I was happy being a cop. Um, I did some time in at North Dakota, and then I went to Misawa, Japan. And a lot of, a lot of PJs don't even know this, but while I was in Misawa, Japan, we opened up a pararescue unit there for a very, very short time. So we actually had one in Misawa uh, who was there for, you know, Maybe it might have been two years, but when that team came in, I started to hang out with those guys and, uh, um, you know, I was into working out, I, they were into working out and, and one thing led to another, they were showing me, basically what sold it for me, I, I guess at the time is they had these portfolios, you know, and they were just showing me all this, you know, crazy stuff, you know, they were climbing, they were skydiving, they were shooting, and it was just so far from the stuff I was doing and it just looked so exciting that uh, I said, that's what I wanna do. Uh, And subsequently what happened was the guy I was hanging out with who later on, I would end up working for him and I would come back together full circle. You know, he initially gave me the pass test. Uh, He must've known me pretty well, you know, maybe, or maybe that's just how they do it. You know, mentally they try to get in your head a little bit, but there was a really high attrition rate Uh, at NDOC and he basically said, I don't think you can do it. I don't, you know, you're, you're fit, you know, you're a good guy. you got a great personality, Tony. Um, Trying to challenge you, huh? Yeah, you know, and he just, but he goes, but you know, it's a high attrition rate and I just don't, I, I don't think you could do it. And, and I, and I was just uh, floored and I said, well, you know what, I'm going to prove you wrong. And so initially, you know, it was almost a, I, I went in kind of on that challenge, you know, to kind of show this guy that I could do it. Um, because I liked them, I, you know, and there was some peer pressure to perform and um, and I wanted to test myself. I guess at a younger age, I wanted to test myself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and backing up, though, what's so interesting about that story is so many of us actually walk into the recruiting stations and see... You know Army Navy Air Force Marines, and you know maybe at times Coast Guard and stuff, but although in my office I never saw Coast Guard, but at any rate, we walk down through there, and I've heard so many stories, especially doing this podcast of fellow you know guys who serve in the uh, the service who who actually walked down the hall and one of the first offices that that they go to, including myself, was the Air Force office, yeah, and you know the Air Force you know of course, I thought. You know, I could fly. Coming straight out of high school, I wanted to know if I could or what the pipeline was. The guy blew me off; had no interest in talking to me, and that's the reason why I went down and started talking to other services. Yeah, and here and here you walk into the the army first, and oh no, man, we don't want you. And you end up going to the air force, totally backwards from what most people end up doing. And, yeah, and and then not only that, but you end up going into a really good career field in terms of being able to translate to the private sector. Um and see an opportunity out there in special operations, but you really had no idea what you were getting yourself into, other than just the conversations you had with the guys, right Uh, within the gym. Yeah. So how was that pipeline
1: once you went in? Was it? Because I mean, it's like what two years? It's yeah, it's two years. A two year uh, uh, a two year pipeline is considered fast. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not uncommon. You know, and you know, you guys know how it is, Uh, Scott. You know, with the SAS, I imagine. Um, both of you guys, you know, you can get broken along the way, you can be an airborne, break your leg, you can be yeah. doing some fast roping. So so guys, you know, they get it treated or, you know, cycled back. So it's not uncommon, to, you know, for guys. But I had a relatively fast pipeline, you know, it, it went uh two years. Um the indoctrination course, the first course, the PJ school indoctrination course down there in San Antonio, um was a tough course. It's the toughest. We attri- We get a lot of our attrition up front and the, at the PJ school there, and then uh, subsequently, with when you go through the pipeline, we don't we don't lose too many people. And then there's another little spike on the tail end when you go to the PJ schoolhouse because of the academics. Uh, you know, they take you from not knowing anything up to a full full blown paramedic. You know, mm. and so that's a pretty steep curve. So there's another little spike right there, but for the most part, if you can get through the first indoctrination course, um, you know, outside of, you know, having a jump and breaking your leg or something like that, you should make it through. And then the next, the next uh, high point is over there in Albuquerque. But yeah, yeah, I trained really, really, really hard, um, for that first course or for pararescue, you know, because I, you know, I had, you know, I was hanging out with those guys and, and again, they, I wanted to challenge myself. They wanted to challenge me and, uh, um, and I thought I was in phenomenal shape. I, I was in really phenomenal shape. My body fat was really low. I, you know, I'm kind of a little bit sh- you know, sh- on the shorter side, but, you know, uh, a little bit more on the muscular side. But I could still, you know, I, I still ran uh, my calisthenics. I trained really, really, really hard. But in retrospect, I, I wish I would even put more time in the pool. The 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 water the water con you know that's it doesn't matter what service you in you're you're in that uh, that kind of uh, levels the playing field why because we're terrestrial creatures okay so you know you could sandbag on land if people are into sandbag and you could probably take a rest or whatever you fall to your knees and you're hurt but you can't do that in, in a in a in a water confidence course you know where you spend half the days in the water because you're sinking to the bottom so everybody's fighting for air there's no sandbagging in there Um, so, uh, yeah, it was tough. It's a tough course, but, um,
0: they didn't get you prepared for that part of it. They didn't like say, Hey man, this is going to be one of the toughest things. Let's go jump in the pool.
1: And you know, (laughs) they um, decided to leave that part out, Tony, what happened? Well, so back when I went through, no, you know, think about where we were with the internet and all the C2 that you could get on things. Yeah. They didn't really talk about it much. And the guys who I was hanging out with just happened to go, yeah, you'll figure it out just like we figured it out. So, They just said get in really good shape and spend a lot of time in the water and and balance it out with your calisthenics and you'll get through it. It's not like that these days. You know, we uh, obviously we're we're trying to there's fundamentally there's some philosophical differences on how we train guys and we try to give them as much time as we can. There's a lot of C2 they can gather. And uh, um, and for the most courses out there, you can see a lot of it on you can get a lot off the Internet, a lot off of YouTube and you can train to the 10th week or 12th week or 16th week standard and uh um. yeah
0: yeah no doubt about it actually there's probably um several former pjs or uh people that came from that community that are of the air force you know AFSOC or whatever that are training individuals who may be preparing to even go so you know for them even enlisting or once they've enlisted it's all right like you know we're going to put you within a pipeline to get you geared up for what you could expect that's right uh, yeah there's several programs that are
1: there are. Uh, there, there are definitely, and it sounds like we know a, a a lot of our mutual friends who are involved in those. But they're definitely, yeah. you know, doing what they feel they need to do to to get the next generation of warriors prepped and and get those pipelines full for the be able to you know kind of fight the
0: next battles. Well, you think about that. The uh, you know, it's already a small number of individuals that are probably going to meet the qualifications or at least have the interest in doing so, and then meet the qualifications. And then there's even a smaller number, you know, as you start weeding them out, that's going to make it through the indoctrination. And the fact that I know I've heard recently pararescue is one of those things that, um, you know, there's a lot of guys as a burnout factor, you know, so there's a lot of guys that are trading out. And so then you've got all of these these gaps that the service needs to fill. Um, so these types of pipelines are great ways in which really you're training the, the next generation, like you just said. You're getting yep. them prepared so that they're going to be successful without the military have to spend hard-earned dollars. Let the individual, you know, contribute to that cost because then they have a greater passion and a desire to complete it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, make no bones about it. If I would have known about something like that, and I think many guys would, why would you not if you, if you, if you had the extra dollars and you could afford, and, and man, I don't, I don't even think they're charging that much, most yeah. of the guys I talk to, but... Um, if that's something you had aspirations for, and you had the mentorship and the guidance early on to kind of, or the situational awareness to know that, hey, I want to go be an operator. I, I, man, I'd be doing everything I possibly could. That's what we tell all our operators, anyways, is, is to, you know, try to get as much C2 as you possibly can. Know, know your enemy. Um, know yourself. Uh, know your team. So, uh, man, to, to put. What you can physically and mentally in the best position to uh, for success and man absolutely you know yeah um, I think I there's um, a
2: reoccurring theme with a lot of guests we have on from from different backgrounds that the 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 training phase or the uh, the selection phase involves water that. People often say it's the hardest part, and I think people underestimate. You made a great comment, Tony, about us being terrestrial animals, you know, when we belong on land and stood up on two feet. And when you put people in water, I think they massively underestimate it, you know, just the amount of energy you get sapped because of the water temperature, the the different muscle groups. And, you know, people think I'll, I'll go and do some training and just jump in the pool and swim lengths. You know, and and that's working your shoulders and different muscle groups. But then, when you put somebody in, you know, treading water for long periods of time, or uh, with clothing on, or carrying different equipment, or doing different tasks in the water, it just hugely takes it out of people. And you talk about that burnout rate of people burning out, and I I, I would suggest or guess really that there's something to do with that amount of muscle groups that are being used in those water. Um, evolutions that people just haven't trained and they haven't worked towards and built up and you know that just overtaking your body and really ramping up the fatigue uh, level and you know it, you're right the military spends a lot of money in training people and getting them ultimately it wants them to pass because it needs uh, operators but it needs the best operators that it can get and i think you know that that build up and getting some good training in the water so you know what could you offer any advice for anybody who's who's thinking about being an operator tony and there's there's water elements to the selection process
1: oh yeah yeah absolutely um because man it, it most of those services at some point some at some course you're going to go through whether it's a combat dive course or something like that or whether it's the end doctor or buds you know um, you're going to spend some time in the water you know the physical component that you know when they have these physical assessment assessment programs and and things like that you know obviously we all know it's the mental the mental toughness and you're trying to test the mental but to get to the mental, the fastest way we can assess people is to put them in physical stressing type of things. That's why we opt for the water. That's why we opt for, you know, to put a rucksack on them and run them and then have them get emotionally and physically exhausted because then that gets us to the mental, you know, but the water component. So yeah, when guys tell me that like, Hey, yeah, Hey, I'm getting some time in the pool. I'm swimming laps and this and that. I'm always like, Okay, well, you just can't make it all about swimming laps, man. You know, um, that that is why, at least my experience when I went through Indoc, we had a couple, we had a couple guys who surfed, and there was a guy, there was a college polo player, and these guys actually did very, very well. And I think it's the component mixed with they were comfortable in the water. And there's a big difference between being comfortable in the water and then getting in the water to swim laps. You know, mm-hmm. putting 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 the laps on. And I and I always tell the guys, I go. Getting comfortable in the water is probably, in my head, the tougher of the two. So if you can learn to be comfortable in the water, because down there at In Dock and when you go to Buds and any of these type of courses, they're they're not just putting you in the water to to swim laps. It's like you're upside you're upside down, backwards, being flipped. You know, a, a, a zodiac falls on your head, and now you're penned underwater. You're tying knots. They're doing everything to kind of discombobulate you and make you all confused. So you really. You really want to train being comfortable in the water, so that is one thing I tell them. I go, oh, you got to go past just getting in the water and swimming laps, man. So, you know, obviously we joke around. We're like, uh, hey, uh, you know, find a couple guys, take them to the pool with you, find some guys who don't like you very much, and have them go down there and just dunk on you a little bit. You know, you know, I say it in jest, but but you know, yeah. I'm kind of serious too yeah. because because the instructors they're just trying to kill you, you know. But by the time you leave courses like that, you do feel, man, I, I think I could do anything, man. When, you, when you've when you been underwater and you're out of breath and you're just totally getting crushed and four instructors are on you just doing everything they can to not let you to the top, well, you know, you, it it prepares you for all the stressors that you're going to feel, you know, when it comes to going to war and all the uncertainty, you know, and, and the confusion. That's what they're preparing you for is being able to deal with that stuff, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Several, several months ago, I can't remember when it, it, exactly it was. It might have actually been about a, a year or more ago. There was a PJ that shared a video of jumping in off the helo hitting into high seas that looked like they were probably, you know, 8, 10, 15 feet seas. And, I mean, choppy as all get out, rotor blade wash, you know, coming down and then having to swim a fairly good distance to the rope and climb that rope back into that helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. (laughs) That was enough to break sweat on me and make me think, holy, yeah, no yeah it's it's very different and and you're right you're not going to experience that necessarily within a pool but they try to create that in such a way you know that you're going to deal with adversity and circumstances um like what you're going to do out there in the real life you know in trying to save a life
1: yep yeah I, i'll tell you hey, the, ter- the, the terrifying one uh is just what you said. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. But, uh, it's when you're paying the, you're, when you're playing the patient and a, in a litter that's in the water scenario and oh. you're hooked up to the helicopter and you're playing the patient and the <laughs> helicopter starts going forward and they're, they're trolling you through the water and you're underwater and you can just barely, I mean, it's, it it can be terrifying. Oh you know? my God. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any radio because contact? You know, well, you know, well, when you're the patient that, you know, your PJ brothers who are helping you out, they're the ones talking to them, like, hey, you know, they're, they're screaming up to him. But like uh, that, yeah. that's scary because, you know, you're confined, you're confined in the litter. And you know how it is. Any one of us, you know, now I really can't even help myself. I'm just along for the ride. You know, it's uh, wherever this pilot wants to take you. It's just Holy terrifying.
2: Cow. I think pool water and, and seawater are two different beasts as well, Tony, aren't they? Yeah, you know, yeah. It, pe- people can be <clears throat> comfortable in uh, arduous or, or extreme circumstances in, in in a pool situation, you know. But you know, ultimately, you can you can you know there's good visibility you can put your feet down at some point and you can sink down and, and eventually you'll come to the bottom in in the sea with swell and, and waves it's a totally different beast and i i guess that comes back to when you said surfers you know uh who've gone on the course did really well because they, they've just got that comfort of being in seawater and getting used to taking seawater in and you know instantly not throwing up and and panicking and, and you know the burning sensation you get in your nose and it, it's just, it's just a different animal being in the sea isn't it compared to uh, uh, freshwater or, or pool water oh
1: yeah absolutely and uh yeah and the, and the surfers i always thought it's because yeah they're getting pummeled they've been penned on coral. They they get head over the head and their surfboard takes off and they they're used to being tossed around and uh, you know the other thing is you know those cables you know now you got me thinking about helicopters and cables but you know it's really dangerous when you 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 lose control of the cable like the end so it's attached to the litter all the way to the helicopter but when they start loading too much of that cable and now it's in the water that's really dangerous you know you got this cable oh, yeah, down there can that wrap can, around you yeah it can wrap around your leg you know man it'll take your leg off you know uh you know i've seen so many accidents you know my buddy when we were in italy you know he, he it got it you wouldn't think about it but it can make a tight little knot that cable it's really fine it's pliable and it can make a small little knot it's hard to believe but you know he had a thumb taken clean off it just wrapped right around his thumb just when we were doing hoist operations over there in Italy, and it took his thumb clean off. It's unfortunate, it but you gotta really pay. You know all those little tiny things. You know, and I love water work. I think yeah. it's just fun. You know, being underneath the helicopter, the spray. But make no bones about it. You know, one one lapse in, in judgment, it could cost you or cost somebody dearly.
0: I think what's uh, for me most impressive about PJs is the training that you guys go uh, do go through. You know, the various different types of situations that they place you within um, and you constantly train towards because in any given day, there may be a situation where you're going to be called upon to go make a rescue and you don't know where that down pilot or where that person is that you need to be aiding is going to be. And yep. so you train for any and every environment, which is, I think, somewhat different than most medics, you know, yeah. within all the other services. Uh, And I think it's one of the reasons why you guys are considered a lot more of the elite, at least in my mind. I would probably uh, place you guys and then from the medicine standpoint, definitely you guys and then, you know, ranger medics, uh, you know, in the army and stuff very
1: close, although you probably disagree with that. I see the smile on your face. Oh, no, 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 there's, I, 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 have worked with all the counterparts, you know, all of our sister services and a lot of foreign, you know, SAS units and, uh, they're all great. They all have different specialties. And, uh, you know, I've always thought of myself as not so much a medic. and, And I think most PJs kind of feel this though. They're, uh, nationally certified registered nationally paramedics. Um, that's only one aspect of it. It really is. I've always thought of myself as a rescue expert. You know, that's that's what I was always told my job was. Uh, like you said, my job was to be able, at a moment's notice, to go anywhere uh, at any time around the world and execute a rescue. We don't know what it's going to be. Uh, you know, I always like to say, you know, we're bad weather animals. Disaster's fair as children. You know, when people are running away from the chaos or cobar towers, they're coming out. We're going in, you know, like any of our, our, our forces who are rescue folks and who are medics, but I've always enjoyed the complexity of the rescue. So some, some guys enjoy the medicine, some guys enjoy the shooting, some enjoy the, uh, the climbing, some enjoy the jumping, the free fall and all that stuff. All great. Um, but, it was to me it's about solving the puzzle like how are we going to execute this rescue uh you know what's the crux in there what are we really dealing with obviously you know once you get in there because before you even get to you know the downed helo or a cobar towers you know before you can get in there and put your hands on patients, you know we still gotta we gotta worry about safety how are we going to get in there? are we climbing in are we moving slabs of rock so yeah. So if you if you got to be able to execute that anytime, anywhere around the world, then you spend a lot of time training and going to schools um, that are, um, you know, shoring up those areas that you need the expertise you need to have to execute a rescue.
0: Yeah, your training and expertise really allows you guys to be attached or embedded with a lot of sister forces and doing some pretty high intense missions, you know, that perhaps you wouldn't ever think of. You know, like you said, it, there are roles for every branch, and there are, are roles of what everybody does within a branch. And I think you know there are complementary um, opportunities where there may be a specific midge- uh, mission where a PJ would complement whatever force is going for it. You know, yeah. to hit the X, and yep. you guys may be pulled in, and maybe the only Air Force guy you know, type of thing. And I think that's what's a lot of uh, maybe uh, confusing to a lot of people who are not aware of that. Um, and maybe are looking at entering the service is that, you know, PJs end up going all over the place. And and like you said, working with SAS, working with SF, working with Delta, working with
1: whomever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I would, that's why, uh, I really enjoyed being a PJ. And when I, when, when you guys say it now, and I look back at the life of, you know, a 26 year career and most of that in pararescue, uh, that's what made it fun. You know, I, I like to move around and, um, and work with different people, you know, and different teams and stuff like that. So uh, that was a lot of the reward and the, and the experiences you gain from moving around from different teams, you know, and seeing how these guys do it. And, uh, and you, and you, and you take those lessons learned and you move right on to the next team. You can really garner a lot of life experience from, from training with some of the highest, most respected soft units on the planet. Um, you know, and just getting attached to them. And, and that's what was really, it's, it's really neat. And, you know, the, for pararescue, um, you know, that's their primary job, you know, within the DOD that that's not a tertiary mission. Now, everybody within the DOD, all your services, and, and I can't speak to how Scott does it over there with the SAS, but within, within, uh, you know, with our, within our country, all the respective services have an obligation to, to do self SAR and, and police their own and do the best they can for their own. um, that's a tertiary mission. That's a secondary mission. You know, the Rangers have a secondary mission for, for, for rescue, but that's a primary mission. It's the DOD's primary mission for air force pararescue. That's their only job they come in and sign up for. That's what they do on a day to day. And that's when they go down range and execute their job. That's what they do. That's their primary mission. It's not a secondary or tertiary. It's their primary. So, um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming that, like
0: a lot of special operations in the op tempo, and and what you guys have in terms of you know experiences, um, I think one of our biggest challenges that we're seeing within the veteran community, especially within the soft community, is post traumatic stress, and you know the issues related to that. Do you know how is it affected within your 26 year career? How how did it really affect you? um and the people around you and stuff and those that you served and and is it one of those things that you know um well i know that we're really trying to face it and to tackle the issues and stuff that go along with that but in in what ways has it really affected you or you've been able to maybe even aid others um you know going through those experiences
1: yeah so yeah I'll, i'll share a story with you um you know because i I still remember exactly where this this was brought up to me because in some ways I guess I was was ignorant to the fact that when you when you talk about operators at the highest level, you know, the tip of the spear type of folks, it's a volunteer job. They're indoctrinated a certain way. Many of these guys, they've been thinking about it since high school. They they want to join this community. So I actually thought that when you talk about, and I never called it PTSD, but when you talk about combat stress, yeah i'm I'm not saying that I thought that we were entirely immune from it. I just didn't think um, that that it was rampant as it was in our communities, you know, because because of all the training, because mm-hmm. it was a volunteer job. And if that makes sense. Oh yeah. So so our guys know what they're getting into. You know, the guys they graduate school, they know that hey, within two weeks they're going to be on the front lines. Or they're they're going to be deploying. So you take a person who hasn't had the training we have, and now they're getting tasked to go outside the wire, and they're 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 doing convoys as they're doing transfers between FOBs. They're getting hit by IEDs, and now they're picking up weapons. Well, they haven't had all the training I've had. So in in some ways, I was I was ignorant to the fact. That our guys were actually being affected by it. So in two thousand two thousand seven, yeah, two thousand seven, I had a guy who was was a PJ, a really good pararescueman. He was involved in a helicopter crash, and it was a it was a uh, it was a forty seven, and he was sitting in the middle, and everybody after him, I believe it was everybody after, and I might get this confused or might get this messed up, but um uh, everybody after him died and everybody forward of him lived okay and he was a critical guy okay so he was one of the more critical guys kind of right there on the cusp of, of being really really serious so he spent some time in the hospital so within about a year he got out and got back up on the teams okay so now this guy's working for me and um ready to go back down uh, back in combat he's ready to deploy and he's doing the pre spin up you know the, uh during the uh pre spin up training And he's in charge. He's the team leader. He's a team leader, a good pair of rest men getting ready to take this team down range. And we're like, I think we were eight days from taking the team down range. And he walks into my office and he goes, he shuts the door. He goes, NG. So NG is my combat combat initials. I know you guys have your combat initials. November golf. He goes, November golf. Can I talk to you? I go, yeah, what's up? He goes, "Um, yeah, I can't take the team down range. And I go, what do you mean you can't take the team down range? Like, you've been with them for those last three months training them up. You're deploying it in eight days. And he goes, um, yeah, I, I just can't go. And I'm, and I'm kind of like, what do you mean you can't go? And he goes, something's wrong. And I go, you mean something's wrong in your head? He goes, yeah, something's going on. I can't take the guys down range. And he was really nice about it. And I go, Okay. Yeah. Don't worry about it. We'll find somebody to replace you. But that was the first time that I actually heard that's the year it happened. That's the first time I heard of anybody talking about what I'll call combat stress and rescue. Never. That's, that's the first time anybody ever mentioned anything like that. It wasn't, unless it wasn't on my radar, but, and this, you see how it went down in that office. It wasn't on my radar. So I sent an email up to our chiefs and I said, Hey, uh, maybe we want to canvass the force. I just had a guy come in and say he's having some emotional problems and he goes, Oh, okay, really? So they sent out an email and sure enough, we got these little onesies and twosies back from a lot of the different squadrons. And that's when we realized that, um, Hey, we're starting to have now look at where we were, you know, we're, we're seven years in the war, you know, we're in, um, um, and we're at a pretty high ops tempo. You know, it's not, it's not uh, a quick in and out It's a stained war. Now it's a statement war, Um, But that's that's when I first first noticed it. And and since then, we've moved light years from then. Okay, now we have huge uh, initiatives called uh, Preservation of the Force and Family. That's right smack within Aspect War or Guardian Angel or Battlefield Airmen. So the Air Force as a whole has come full circle on from that time all the way up to a huge initiative called preservation of the force and family, which is taking care of our, of our operators mentally. You know, it's got di- different pillars that reside within, you know, spiritual, you know, social work, the physical and mental to help out with the physical and mental stressors of war, you know? And, yeah. uh,
0: That's one of the reasons why I asked that, because I know that you guys are really at the tip of the spear of that in terms of a lot of different career fields. You know, you guys have really embraced that your leadership, and have created uh a lot of different programs and and i'm familiar with some of them like you had just mentioned especially within like the Saint, uh, san antonio area and and uh, what they're doing there and the commands very commendable and i think it is an area of focus um but we we also see it of course with those who are in the veteran community who are former pjs who may at that time frame again because of the op tempo what they were doing and everything else it didn't seem like it affected them because they were in the mission. They were in the fight. That's right. They, they come back home. They have an opportunity to transition. They're not around those teammates. They're not in the fight. And then that's when, you know, those things uh, of the past and what they saw or experienced or whatever starts creeping up. And and those are the things that we really have to watch within the community.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's, um, you know, they, they, I, I think the military has done, at least from from my vantage, from where I sit, and coming from aspect the aspect war community within the Air Force, they've done a phenomenal job um, at at trying to implement the processes and the initiatives um, at the pace that is is commensurate with how the Air Force and the DoD. Moves out. They've done. They've done a. They've done a great job. Uh, it continues to get better. They continue to put these things in place that that make our families stronger. Um, and based off the lessons they've learned, and it's it, it's not a fault of the military. It, it's just how it is. You know. You know. Nobody expected nine eleven to happen. Boom. We're right smack in the middle of it. And um, and some lessons we probably we continue to learn again, you know, things from, from Vietnam and, and, and our world wars. But um, from, from at least where I sat and what I saw, they, they tried to make the initiatives and put the things in place, the mechanisms that um, were, that did the best by the men, by the operators, um, as we started to hit those tipping points and, 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 and and started to understand them.
0: I like what you're saying there, because, you know, there is a period of, you know, you gotta evolve. And yep. and like you said, um, you mentioned Vietnam, you mentioned, you know, even previous wars and stuff, when you look at those, you know we didn't know what to term it we didn't know what to call it we didn't really you know shell shock it was yeah. combat fatigue it was you know other terms that you didn't really know how to fix and you thought that it was isolated cases not realizing that it could be systemic within certain mos's you know and and challenged because of the op tempo and the things that we're requiring of our forces so i think there is a bit um of evolving that has taken place through the war and learning we have to be able, you know, we learn on the battlefield of, of medicine and techniques and everything to save lives. And the same thing is applicable as we begin to grow in, in the service of understanding post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, how to recognize those things, identify them early, you know, maybe put them on the bench but not take them out of the fight necessarily, you know. We're Back, as, back in the day, it was an automatic discharge. Today, they're yeah. at least we're trying to find opportunities to salvage um, a service member who they spent a tremendous amount of money and training on and, and see if there's an opportunity where they can keep them engaged, but while also trying to help them, you know, get fixed and, and their family along with that. So I, I think we're making um, better stride. We have a better, we're, we're at a better pace now um, yeah. than what we were in the past. I would agree with you with a, a lot of different commands. We still have a ways to go, yeah. but there's a lot of unknown here. As yep. we begin to navigate through it,
1: yeah. These, you know, for the most part, you know, when you think about war, these are unchartered, you know, waters. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, um, and 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 look at all the technology, and the advancements, and medicine, and everything, and, and prosthetics, and everything that comes out of it's unfortunate, but it's a byproduct of of war. But look at everything it drives. You know, all these type of things, and yep. and uh, you know, but um, yeah, I, I I think they've I think. Uh, They've done very well, you know, and 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 try to capitalize on some of those things to, to take care better care of our families and support them. And I and they're that and they're and they're going to continue to get better. I don't see them going backwards, you know. That's what I want to believe, but I don't see them them going backwards in this initiative when it comes to taking better care of our families from from cradle to grave, you know. Because what good is to invest in the operator and yeah he does that and he and he does twenty thirty years and and our veterans who who give, um, you know, they uh, they're all to, to go and, and execute war and, and then to be, to be at the most critical juncture as they separate from the military and, and to be broken and to, to be broken after that. So, um, you know, what I, I think what a lot of people don't understand is there's a lot of knowledge out there. There's a lot of best, there's a lot of best practices on how to do this better. But when it comes to the human mind and the psyche, it doesn't have to be perfect. We don't have to have per- perfect mechanisms. The theme is perfect, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to do right by the people and take good care of them, that part w- will resonate and help keep them stronger as they as they do their time in the military and separate after them after that, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think the military's evolved more in this last era than it has in. You know, you, you spoke about the the Vietnam conflict, the Second World War, the First World War. I mean, in, in the UK, we had the, the Northern Ireland conflict, the Falklands War in the early eighties. But the the Iraq Afghanistan period, or the the global war on terror, the the military as a whole has evolved more in the last twenty years than it ever has, I think, in, in its its entire life cycle. You know, and it's 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 definitely moving forward in, in terms of acceptance and losing stigma you know and you spoke earlier tony about you know as a a, an operator not thinking that it could affect you guys because of all the training you have and the understanding the knowledge the expectation of seeing and doing those things but everybody's human at the end of the day and everybody's got a you know a a certain volume that your, your 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 cap can hold as yeah. uh, one of the common al- uh, analogies is so everybody's got a breaking point and, and a point where they, they they just can't absorb anymore and take any more on board and i think the military deals with it a lot better now and robert said earlier you know previously if you if you said listen i'm not feeling right that was it you was gone
0: yeah literally
2: yeah. okay you're no good to us anymore out the door and i think now they they deal with it better but uh, I, again robert said that, that the words that I think are right equally, there's a long way to go still, you know, yeah. and there's, there's a huge amount of talent and experience and skill in people. And if if they're suffering from whatever it may be in terms of uh, stress related, then, you know, there's no benefit to anybody in, in releasing them because that you know that that person loses that sense of purpose that sense of belonging those things that can help you um you know recover effectively uh, before you get released back out and um i, I think you know that the, there's a huge amount that's being done now that was never even thought of you know in in previous eras or generations if you like of uh, uh, of military or combat um uh, veterans yeah. i guess
1: yeah no you're absolutely right if you if you think about it in the sense of you know um, maybe this is analogous to if you think about at least within the air in the air Force you know and then you guys can I'm sure could tie it to something from your respective uh, branches but in the Air Force you know you have that you have the aircraft and everything's built around the aircraft you know it really is it's built around the you know the F-30, you know, the F-35, the F-22, the it's 16s, and and they're built around that, and the whole base is kind of built around in support of of the aircraft, the maintenance and everything like that, and uh, it, it's kind of neat because you know early on in my career I was dating this girl who worked in an area called NDI, and that was the lab, that was the lab techs that analyzed the oil hmm. of the aircraft. And I'm like, so what do you do? And she's like, well, you know, like she goes, we could tell what's breaking down before it ever breaks down in the aircraft just by analyzing and doing these hard metal checks within the oil. And they they, they run everything through the labs and everything. And and so they keep these aircraft in top maintenance, you know, these in, 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 in the best performance they possibly could be. And before the engine breaks down or and they could tell everything about it before it breaks down. They're constantly doing that. That's the way. You need to you need to build the infrastructure around your people that you built around the airframe. At least if like you that. If, if that makes sense. No, it okay? does. So, so you, you gotta put you gotta put and it's gotta start early on. It can't yeah. start halfway through their careers. It's from day one. You have the infrastructure in place. You you have resiliency programs. You you're tighter on your networking and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it goes back to kind of what I was saying about hey, it doesn't have to be perfect, but if the people understand that you're trying to get to perfect, or we're trying to make the best programs we possibly, that's still going to help them psychologically deal with things. And uh, so, you know, that, that's the way I look at it. If you're going to build, you have that around the airframes, you know, what's built it around the people the whole time while they're in the military.
0: I, I would say that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a great suggestion. And I think part of the challenge is going to be, and I think you would agree, Tony, is that, um, you know we have tons of data that 's probably available on aircraft because it was a single focused and so yeah. important to the mission set that we failed to see the thing that 's most you know obvious in front of us, which is the human capital side of this thing so now we're we 're making a pivot we 're doing a course correction and trying to capture data as quickly as we can to be able to combat and see leading indicators to how we can address the issues we're seeing with post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. It's going to take a period of time. People want more now, but I really believe we're trying to make, you know, a a strong effort to evolve and understand that. But it means we also have to collect data and it means people have to be willing to come forward so that the data can then be put within some place to be analyzed. That's and try right. to identify those leading indicators. So you think yep. about it, not very many people we were talking, you know, Scott brought up the stigma, not yeah. very many people up until recently ever wanted to go to command and say that they had, you know, an issue with post-traumatic stress or combat fatigue or whatever, because that was it. Yeah. So it, you're talking about a short window where, where we've really probably started learning, you know? And, and that's kind of the difference. Now, I will say this, though, you know, since Scott's on the uh, podcast, is that the difference of where we are today here in America to where you are, in, you know, Scott, with the British forces, is like night and day. I mean, it's only been with, what, the last year or so? You've even created a program very similar to the U.S. And, I mean, you're almost, in, in some phases, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, similar to, you know, not much beyond where we were after post Vietnam.
2: Yeah, I think. The, the difficult thing for me to to comprehend with this is we, we fight in the same conflicts. You know, in, it it it's not as if we're involved in a set of conflicts and you're involved in a set of conflicts and we're completely separate entities in different parts of the world. We we serve together. We we you know you do joint operations, mixed missions. It's 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 a combined force, you know, with and, and more than just the British and the American. But individually, back in their home countries, then there there isn't the same um, grounding, there isn't the same understanding, there isn't the same availability of things, you know. And, and this is right the way up from uh, PTSD or um, post traumatic care uh, or uh, recovery programs. You know, we, we was talking on the podcast two weeks ago, I think it was, with um, when Nick Goldsmith was on, the, the former Royal Marine, um, uh, uh, about an operation that's available in the US. And, you know, Nick had never heard of that. And Nick was has been diagnosed with complex PTSD. And the, the benefits of that operation were probably greatly improve Nick's life and it'd it benefit him and his family immensely. But it, it's not, you know, it's not heard of, it's not the general practice over here, but it's it's becoming more and more available within the US. And, you know, e- even down to equipment, I, I remember going to Afghanistan uh, in 2002 and we, we literally deployed in January with... Um, Winter equipment for for uh, for basically the likes of Norway and things, and nothing else. And we we got to we got to May, and the temperature swung completely over about three weeks. And we was literally I I was in Gore-Tex lined boots, you know, <laughs> uh, and and winter thermal socks. The <laughs> sleeping bag I took with me was you know a, a comfort rating of minus 12 (laughs) and it was just we we didn't that was we didn't have any decent equipment you know we was we was in a desert environment in in dpm temperate um equipment you know there was was just nothing we cleared um uh uh, what was a new camp for the americans next door to where we was um for, for you guys to come in and take that over and I, I remember, and I think I've probably told this story before, Robert, I, I remember the, the Americans coming on the handover day, and my team had cleared this um, this old barracks, and all these Humvees coming down the road, you know, and the guys are on the top on the 50 cal, and, you know, uh, American football jerseys with their uh, um, body armour over the top of it, and I just thought, that, you know, this, this is like an, a movie with... The way you see Americans portrayed in the movie, but when the guys turned up then, and and you know he's talking and just having a conversation, and and take my job is to take the guys through and say right, we've cleared all these rooms and go in and show them everything, and you know we was just having a general conversation and we was talking about equipment and things, and we was like, we don't get any of that shit. What what's what's going on here that we we're in exactly the same conflict. We you know we, we're now. Neighbors, effectively, in, in our compound was next door to this new compound that we cleared for you guys, and you know, just basic things like I hadn't I hadn't seen a you know a a, a a can of coke in probably three months, and the guys are turning it with great big slabs of Pepsi and <laughs> snacks and things, and it was just like the the difference between two militaries, and I think it's mm-hmm. there's always been that gap. You know, in, in terms of services, equipment, from the very basic stuff, the trivial things, right the way up to the important things. Uh, and, you know, I think budget comes down to a lot of it in terms oh, yeah. of budget is phenomenal compared to, to ours in, in, in the UK. And, you know, it, it it shouldn't be that way in terms of us having to think of you know or set up our own programs that are expensive uh, you know resource heavy because you guys have already done that and you've got the budget to do that you know that for me that there should be joint services and and combined uh, and supporting each other and you know budget sharing almost and getting our guys on your programs or there's no point in reinventing the wheel. I think is the, the common phrase Robert and I often talk about. And I just think there's a huge amount that, you know, we we could learn likewise with, with sharing. And I, I know there's a lot that goes on in um, British with, with you guys over there and you guys over here, as you said earlier, Tony, you was, you were yeah. stationing, you know, uh, but I, th- I think there's, there's more opportunity for collaboration, particularly around, the back end of things, you know, the, the poor service, um, care, treatment, you know, just your GI bill compared, we don't have anything like that in, in the UK, you know, yeah. so it's, it's the, 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 there's, there's a huge amount of opportunity, I think for, for collaboration and, you know, cross-pollination of learning, I guess, um, between the our, our two countries. And it's just a shame that it doesn't happen. It doesn't yeah. get done.
0: Well, one of the areas I think where you guys yeah. also fall, you know, short or at least have a difficult time is something where Tony is actually. Um, created, you know, Fusion Cell that is around helping transition military service members. And we, we talk a lot about the challenges of making the transition and trying to find employment, trying to find your passion and your purpose. And it's equally as difficult for those service members that are over in the UK, you know, that are trying to do that same thing, or for that matter, other countries. And, um, you know, one of the things that you guys are doing there, Tony, is, is really trying to help these individuals find their, their new home.
1: Their new, their new plays. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, just to give you some, you know, background on that, it, it's because. So, uh, um, I, I, I separated. Let's let's just say I separated from the Air Force on Friday. Well, on Monday, I started. Uh, I, I was lucky and fortunate enough to be in a position or an opportunity to to buy a business. And so I bought a company called SEI and I started running that thing on Monday after I separated on, on Friday. And uh, so I continued to, to stay plugged into to the AFSPEC war community and kind of the soft community um, by training those guys through SEI. And then a year later, um, a buddy of mine that I spent some time at one of the units we started up, uh, he wanted to start up something to help address Combat stress, PTSD for PJ's, uh, combat rescue officers. So we started up the Pararescue Foundation. Okay. So because of those ties, and I see the community a lot through the Pararescue Foundation or through SCI, where they'll come up for regular training, I started getting all these phone calls from guys who were getting ready to get out. You know, they're they're a year from getting out, and then some guys called me up, said, Hey, I need to, I want to find a job. What's out there. I'm like, well, when are you getting out? They're like, well, I got out Friday, you know? And, and so I was basically doing what probably predecessors before me were doing and other good guys that were in the operator world. I was pushing them back overseas to do contracting stuff because oh, yeah. that's where a lot of our guys where they're comfortable too. That's where they're comfortable. And they have, we had a lot of network there, the money, the money was good. And so, you know, So a lot of these guys were like, hey, I'm not sure what I want to do. And I'm like, okay, hey, call this guy. They're looking for for PJs. They're looking for SEALs. They're looking for guys. um, And, you know, see how that works out. Well, I had five good friends of mine either get hurt, maimed, or killed. Okay. And then the last, the icing on the cake was a good buddy of mine. Once once I moved up here to New Hampshire, you know, I ran into an old uh, SEAL buddy of mine. I uh, said, hey, what do you think about coming out doing some work with uh, with SEI and the company? He said, Yeah, absolutely. I gotta go do a contracting gig. And he went and uh, basically got his legs blown off. So when that happened, it got me thinking about like, you know what, why don't we try to offer some different opportunities to our 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 guys who are getting out? Okay, because some of them no matter what they're probably always go- they're they're going to want to be gunslingers no matter how you know they're just cut that way and no matter you know how long they stay in even if they were older that's what they want to go do yeah but i don't think that's the norm for everybody mostly if you if you have a traditional life you have some kids you get older you make your way from the terminal area up to the you know you're doing time at the pentagon you become a chief you become a sergeant major and you have family and and so you know, you, 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 you graduate up to the strategic positions and maybe you don't want to go back into that, but what you'd like to do is you'd like to find a comparable, um, job that is commensurate with the strategic job you've been doing maybe at the Pentagon or some of the higher ranks of being, you know, a master chief, a sergeant major, um, chief master sergeant in the air force or, or an officer. And so, uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to start leverage in my business connections. So I ran into a guy up here. Uh, there was an iHeart Radio talk show host by the name of Jack Heath, mm-hmm. and he was a real prolific, and he is a very prolific guy up here for helping veterans. And so all these folks kept saying, "Hey, you should go go talk to Jack. Go talk to Jack. You know, very well connected, nice guy, and just done a lot for veterans." So him and I got together, and we said, "Hey, you know, why don't we just start here in New England?" And we'll just, uh, we'll come talk to some of these companies and see if they're, if they'd be willing to, uh, I know it's like grassroots. It's like, you walk in there like, hey, would you be willing to hire qualified veterans? Oh yeah, I'd be willing to hire qualified veterans. I mean, if you could show me a qualified veteran and you get an application. What does that look like? Yeah, Yeah, you know, and absolutely. So that, that was the startup of really a fusion cell. And then, um, and when you when you think about only having so much capacity, I mean, look at what you guys do. You know, you guys are busy and you only have so much time in a day and and you're trying to cover down on the things you can cover down on. Well, initially, I was looking at it just for, you know, taking care of like my community and some of the operators and, and trying to find some of these guys um, jobs out there as 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 what I didn't know program managers, you know, Tiger Team stuff, but you know maybe that's a program manager uh, and a uh, uh, business development guy, and uh, so as we start sitting down with different companies, you know all of them are you know and who's going to say otherwise? It's not like somebody's going to come out and say, well, no, I don't want to hire a veteran. I absolutely want to hire veterans. You give me a qualified veteran, Tony, and I'll hire him as long as I have a job opening and I understand what he does and we can see how we can we see how to make him fit into. Uh, the company, you know, if I go down to Wayfair and we talk to them, you know, I even I joke around about it, but uh, you know, we chatted with a couple of companies, and I remember the guy going, "Well, Tone, you know, I don't know, you know, I, it's not like I need a seal to take the building down." I go, "Yeah, you don't, but you know what? Um, you probably could use him as somebody to lead teams, you know, to 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 drive to drive other components or cells of the organization. We can we can we can find out where to put him and stuff like that." So. Um so eventually fusion cell has grown into um a company where we have an investor now and and it's 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 growing to a level where we're taking on we have clients and then we have uh veterans who are obviously getting out every single day looking for jobs um and we take them on and we have clients who are who are um wanting us to help them find these, these qualified veterans that we said we could find them. And, th- and that's what we're doing. So that's what Fusion Cell is. But where I was going to say from a capacity where it grew outside of just helping operators and it, and it grew into helping all veterans, all rates, MOSs, and AFSCs is because when I'm sitting down with, with these different companies, they're like, well, yeah, I could use some of those guys. But, you know, right now I have 200 openings right now on the floor. Or I, I got 300 openings for you know I need a I need a logistician, I need 10 ITs, I need business development people. And so that's where it kind of opened my eyes into like okay, well there, there's there's a lot more jobs out there. We're going to have to open up the aperture here so that's that's your MOSs, that's your different services so we it it opened up to uh, increase the pool of all for all veterans.
0: I think the challenge that I've seen, you know, in my time within the private sector is educating um, educating the private sector on what veteran, you know, what a veteran can offer to them. Not just in soft skills, I'm talking about even hard skills. You know, there's a lot of different um MOSs that that really are preparing them to transition very easily into the private sector if the company can actually see those benefits, see the value That they're going to provide the organization along with the soft skills and had those two individuals, that one that went out to the private sector initially out of, let's say, college or whatever um, or trade school. And that that person that came from the military, if you follow them along the same path and journey, you're probably going to find that the individual that was in the military carries more soft skill benefits than the individual that didn't. And yet they're often overlooked or they're only seen for the soft skills. They're not really seen for the other value that they bring to the table. Um, And so it's really a process, too, of educating the private sector that, oh, they're not just for entry level roles. You know, you could get mid and senior level positions that are not just officers, but enlisted individuals who may bring an MBA to the table, may bring a wealth of knowledge of how, like you said, to build teams, drive the strategy, you know, and, and develop a plan and an execution to get it accomplished, hold their people accountable, apply metrics to everything that they do. You know, it's not a mindset necessarily um, that we see within the private sector all the time, especially
1: at the same age group. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so here, so I'm just going to share my philosophy on this because this is, this is where I want fusion cell. This is what I want fusion cell to grow into because this is absolutely, what you said is is so bewildering to me. You know, when, when I went to go get out, if technically, if you think about it, and Scott, I don't know how it is with you and how it works over there, but, uh, you know, uh, when you go to get out of, you know, the Air Force, you know, my AFSC or my MOS or my rate, you know, you can put that into a little gonculator and it basically tells you what you would qualify for in the civilian sector. And, uh, but it doesn't take into account all that other stuff you talked about, like your worldly, your worldly experience, your soft skills, it doesn't take into account that, hey, though he was a PJ, you know, I served at the highest levels of of strategy and strategic st- type of stuff. That it doesn't take any of that. Um, so it's it's hard to believe. Like if you take somebody who's been in the civilian, the civilian corporate world, and they go from they make their way up through Wayfair, and they become a middle manager or, a, or a, maybe even a senior leader from Wayfair. They can kick over to Google, and then after that they can go to BAE, and, and everybody yep. understands how that looks. But, but you can be an institutionalized officer enlisted in the military, and then when you go to get out, there's this huge gap yeah, you got There's to translate huge, all that. Yeah. That's right. And it's really, it's really hard to believe. So the way I look at this is it's hard to believe that as long as the military's been around and as long as the civilian components that have been around, and we could start with the civilian companies that support the military, all your big, huge companies, we could start there and we could take this all the way across to the workforce. But the fact that we've been around and we've had our military this long and they haven't come up with and and looked at it like let's form a relationship here almost like a pipeline. It's a, a two pipe- way street though, because you yeah.
0: remember there's an us and them mentality on both sides of the fence. Yeah. You know, I see it at least. I see, you know, a lot of people within the civilian community don't understand why it is that you joined uh, the military, what it is that you truly did. I mean, they think you're putting bullets down range, you know, that's all you're doing. Um, They don't understand what you bring to the table. It's hard for you to articulate that back because it's not the lingo that you speak. Whereas that other individual, who's your peer in terms of um, education, uh, education experience, can articulate it like you said they know how to sell it they know how to package it it's that it's that skill gap that we're talking about uh educational gap no
1: you're right robert and and that's where i was talking about so so look at it like this um it's because nobody's really taking the time to do it. Yes, that's right. But, but, it, but it's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity on both parts. It's a missed opportunity on the DOD's part. Totally and it's, agree. A missed, it, it's a missed opportunity on the civilian sector's part. If you think about it this way, if we take a ladder, so just picture a ladder in your head, just a ladder with rungs, okay? And on one side of the ladder, you have the, and, and not just the Air Force, you have all the military branches, Okay. And from the bottom of that ladder, all the way to the top, you look at that, like, look at it from one year to 30 years and you have all your different jobs and that's your military side over there. Okay. And then you take those rungs, those, those rungs of that ladder are the offshoots of where people would be exiting the military. And you know how it works for the most part you're getting out at four year you do a four year enlistment you can do an eight year you can do a 10 all the way up to 30 years approximately okay and then outside of those rungs people can still offshoot at different points but they offshoot for you know i had a discharge honorable discharge dishonorable discharge i had a medical disability but for the most part everybody kind of knows what these people are and where they can get off and the yeah. other side and the other side is is corporate or the civilian workforce OK, that's on the other side. And say it's a big company like um, what, what's like BAE or something like that. OK, or some big company. Well, that company can be strung out all the way all from top to bottom down that other side of the ladder. Why? Because they need entry level people way down here at the bottom. So yeah. if you come in for four years, you you offshoot. And you could go right into an entry level. Same position. vertical rungs that the you same, were talking about. Same yeah. vertical rung. But at the yeah. top, say you became a colonel or a general or a, a sergeant major or a master chief and you did 28 years. You you offshoot way at the top here, you know. And it and, and the reason why it needs to be a joint thing, because if you if you team these two up together, all your HR departments know exactly what they're getting because they've been fused. So they kind of know, hey, look at that AFSC, that MOS, or that rate, we understand that. Matter of fact, we hire this is the rate or the MOS that we want to target for our for our company. And so does that make sense? You have this yeah. company on the left side, you have all the different jobs and they're and they're fused and they're and they're fed into each other. it's it's you could almost look at it this way. You could almost know what job you're going to have. Before you enter the military and sign up to be an intel officer, you come comment as an intel officer. You say, I'm going to do eight years. Well, I already know that if I offshoot at an eight year or 10 year rung that I'm eligible for these hundred companies, They've they've been fused and they've been working with the military a long time. They hire. If you do 30 years, you're kind of on a track over here. So instead of looking at this military as like, hey, those guys go off and serve. They do this thing. They took this route of the military. What is that? You look at it like. That's a pipeline. It's a pipeline that feeds our country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the civilian workforce. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's a, it's a I, challenge that Scott feel.
0: Uh, I I can feel your pain already. Um, through Scott, this whole what's thing. Up? Yeah.
1: tell me, am I am I off base on this?
2: I th- I, th- I think you you, you're one hundred percent on point with it, Tony. But I think I think that exists yeah. in certain companies. It, and. I, they, and about... they don't want to share that with anybody because they're creaming all the talent off. They got the pick of the people coming out of the military, and people like, people like Amazon can relate military jobs to Amazonian jobs. Yeah, and they know that. So the the companies KPMG, Deloitte, Amazon, the the big companies, or well, the companies with big military recruitment programs, they know what's going on, and they know that translation piece, and. That word, and Robert said earlier, and we 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 speak about it regularly. Translation is the key to it. It's 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 two languages, isn't it? Yeah. The military is yeah. a language from one country, and you're emigrating. You know, you're returning essentially back to civilian street, and you're moving from one country to another, and they speak different languages, and you've got to you've got to pick up the new lingo now to to fit in. But I think some of these big companies they can do that for you, and they can say, "Well, listen, I suggest this role. You come in as a team leader, come in as an area manager, come in as an ops manager, senior ops manager, program manager. That's the job for you. Come and have the interview with us, and, and they'll they'll walk you through which job they think you're going to be good at." The yeah. interview process for military people is flexible and robust enough that you do really well in the interview. Actually let's go to the job above you don't do so well maybe let's go to the job below give him 12 months in that and then move him uh, into the original job that we thought but they know roughly where you're going to go but they're not going to share that with people because they're going to lose that talent pool then. because everybody's going to know so you you know all all these logisticians coming out of the military huge numbers of people yeah. with logistics experience The the world revolves around logistics you know the, the biggest company in the world is essentially a logistics company, yeah. you know, and, and if all these other companies know it, all that talent is going to be spread amongst all the different companies. Now, that's beneficial for everybody leaving the military. It's not so beneficial for the people who want the cream uh, off the top. And the only way to get that then is financially, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to offer yeah. an extra buck, an extra two bucks, an extra 10 bucks an hour, whatever it might be, package wise in in senior roles so that that's kind of a, a closely guarded secret for for the companies that do it well and we all know the companies that do it well but the the military not bothered in doing that thanks very really much i've you know i've i've had my eight years from you i've had my 20 years from you i've had my 32 years out of you thanks very much thanks thank thanks for all you've done out you go into the big wide world and they're not interested in helping with that piece, I don't think. But the 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 solution that you just said, Tony, is perfect. You know, and 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 that example of the ladder with, you know military on the left and civilian uh, careers on the right and, and the vertical rungs are mapped out is, is a perfect solution but I don't, I just don't think you'd get buy-in from either side because one set of people want to keep it to themselves and the other people aren't really invested in it. It, it it doesn't give enough reward for them because it's dead money effectively, dead resource isn't it because it's going for people leaving so it's, it, it, it is the perfect solution, it just would take a hell of a lot of buy-in from both sides to, to get them both to commit to it, you know, on a widespread uh, point.
0: I'm going to say something that's probably not going to be um, liked too much, but I can see on both <laughs> sides of it, you've got a transition assistance program that's focused on incenting, uh, or incentivizing um, uh, an organization based on how many people attend a mandatory class before they separate. So it's it's mandatory. They have to come. Yeah. But, They get measured on how many people come, not how many jobs they fill. On the opposite side of it, you've got the private sector, to your point, that are creating military-friendly programs to attract or at least get the soft skills and people that they can put at very entry-level types of roles or a little above an entry-level. They benefit because they get an outstanding person with traits and qualities and characteristics that they absolutely want and value as their human capital within their organization. But they don't want to take the time, and I'm calling you out, you don't want to take the time to look at the military skills well enough to see along that rung if there is equal play there because they don't feel that you paid your dues in the military in the private sector just like... The military wouldn't accept accept somebody who spent eight years in the private sector, and they now should come in. Other than the medical field, they now should come in as a as a captain, you know, in the uh, the military. Hey, I was a a director level, VP level individual in the private sector. I should be a lieutenant colonel or, a, you know, um, you know, a major uh, yeah. within the military. So. I'm just kind of trying to play the devil's advocate here that what we've created is um, a program where we're trying to play nicely and we're trying to help a transition. Um, and we do that through either a transition program as you're getting out, or we do that through uh, military friendly companies um, that that's what they call themselves, you know, which, yeah. which really they place positions out there that they want to, that they're not going to see you as an equal person but they're friendly. They're yeah. military friendly. It's not a bad thing either way. Yeah. It's just, we have to understand some of the landscape that we're in.
2: Yeah. The systems don't talk to each other equally no. though, do they? So no, but there is we- a
0: book in, or, or a program and application that does do what you're talking about, Anthony, because it does say these are the jobs, like you said, based on your experience and what you've done. It doesn't take the human factor into that. No. That is kind yeah. of what's missing on the, on the private sector side but yeah. yet they're That's not going to see That's hard-coded, though, isn't it? That's it, like is. For like it is. You, you're,
2: yeah. you're, you're, but you're we have, in, we have artificial UK, intelligence to...
0: now. We should be able yeah. to figure this
2: out. But it, you know? it, 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 it needs yeah, a little yeah. bit of the human touch to, to understand, you know, what, what, what did you do in your time? Because whilst I might have been, you know, a, a royal engineer, and an electrical engineer, so in, in my job spec, it's going to match me up with either being a, a construction person, because I've got a combat engineer trade, it's either going to say you've got to be your qualified trade, an electrician, or it's going to say, work in some kind of NGO role in mine clearance, because that's what your trades are, but they're, they're the hard... I was going to, to say, there, that's,
0: the, that's, the, that's the blue-collar positions. But if you're talking yeah. about <laughs> corporate America and you know, going white-collar and stuff, it's going to be much harder. But if you are yeah, looking to be a police officer and you were security forces, there's some like you know combinations it's, there. It's,
2: it's transitional. Of course yeah. it is. Yeah, but yeah. What, what, what I'm talking about in terms of the systems not talking to each other. So in, in, in the UK, we've got a program called the Korea Transition Partnership, which is designed to help people find a job when, when you leave the military. But the metric set up for that organisation is the number of people employed within six months of leaving service. Now, it it it's a completely wrong metric. Mm-hmm. What the metric should be is satisfaction. Yeah. So The people employed in a satisfactory role eighteen months after the service. Don't forget about the six months; it's too soon. Yeah, it's that's right. Because yeah. you could put somebody in a job that pays the bills at six months. Yeah. And currently, they're ticking that box and saying, "Yep, yeah, that person has left." They're taking two months. They're in employment. We've done our part. Job done. But they absolutely hate that job. They've taken it just because it's got to pay the mortgage and you've yeah. got to pay the bills. you know. But actually, I want to do something that's meaningful and I'm going to spend a length of time there. And the problem we get in the UK, and I'm, I, I, I'm willing to bet it's similar in the US, is people leave. They have misconceptions of what they want to do. They think it's a lot easier in CV street or I can walk into a job because everybody wants to hire veterans. You know, we, we we've yeah. got so much going for us. Everybody's going to give us a job. And there's many people out there that will and value what we've done in, in our careers. But there's also people that you go to a job interview and they, that doesn't, everything you've wrote in that CV doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know yeah. what that is. I don't, I don't know what you do. Why you, why are you applying for this job? Because you can't translate what you did into what you're able to do. And yeah. it, they just they spend three months in the job, end up walking out because they've had an argument with somebody. Screw this job, I'm off, I'm not doing it. And that's where the problems start. Then you've mm-hmm. now got no job, you've got no means of paying your bills. You think Savvy Street's a you know a, a pile of crap, and why why have I left? And all that regret that starts coming out as well. And it's just a downward spiral for people. And I think that satisfaction piece is the most important for people. I'm actually doing a job that I enjoy, and I'm gonna have you know a a length of time doing this because it means something to me now. And I think that's what's missing from you know the, the the. the department of defense the mod in the uk helping people to transition it should be about satisfaction not just a job because it's not long term it's it's short-term gain and they're forgetting any long-term value in it
0: does fusion cell help all branches anybody that
1: comes from anywhere absolutely yeah it helps uh, all branches yep okay and and, and, it, and it's not and it's not a transition company there's that's the thing you know, that's and you guys have you talk to veterans all the time so you already know that there's there's plenty of companies that transition the military transition but you know at the end of the day the veteran cares about getting a job you know yeah. that that's what they want I don't I could take transition classes all day you know show me this show me that and uh um they want a job you know, uh, or they want to, or they just want to retire, but most of them want to get a job, a secondary job. They're too young. And, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, so it, it's a, it's a, it's not a transition. We've teamed up with some transition companies, companies that, you know, we've vetted, you know, the honor foundation, you know, it commits another one, great one out there, but, um, you know, and, and the thing for a veteran is there's so many, there's so much information, there there's too much there's too much out there you know hey which transition place is good and they're doing this and how many taps do I, there's a lot of there's a lot of that but uh, no this this is a job this is a job placement company you know we 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 staff you know and the other thing i i didn't bring it up but i should have brought it up is that um it's got two components you know we hire veterans so the company hires veterans because we, if we hire veterans, like they understand veterans. So you know, I, I'm working there, and everybody we've hired has been Air Force. We're bringing on an Army guy, um, but we've teamed up with, you know, the fourth largest staffing company um, in the country. So you know, Medicus, uh, before it was acquired, was the fourth largest staffing company in the com- country. So you know, when I sat down with those guys, and we sat with them, myself and Jack Heath. You know, I'm like, well, man, if you're the fourth largest staffing company in the country, you know, you must know something about staffing. Why can't we just staff? We should be able to staff veterans right into, um, in, into these companies. So it's a good relationship, you know. Now they were staffing what are called local tenants, which are kind of uh, the medical side, hospital, you know, mm. personnel. But mm-hmm. hey, you know what? Now, now we're just taking that and and uh, we're taking the magic that they understand in staffing, and now they're staffing veterans. You know. where where can people learn more about fusion cell um you can go to fusion com. okay yep and
0: right. are you guys on social media or something like that if they want to follow you on that
1: yeah yeah we're on um you know the fusion cell we have a fusion cell uh website um we're on linkedin we're all over linkedin if you just pop in i mean if you just go to google and pop up fusion cell it's going to be the first thing pop up it'll be the first thing pop popping up and uh um, for all those things you guys said, Scott, you know, and and uh, Robert, like, um, this is this is a a veteran company, okay. Um, and going back to all that resiliency, I have a I have a of a, a different philosophy on taking care of veterans, and it starts from the very beginning, okay. So, like we were talking about, you got to put the resiliency in place, you got to put the infrastructure in place to take care of the veterans. Because some people get out, some people do four years and they get out. Some do eight. Yep. Some do thirty. I was an institutional some, man, so I do some get medical discharged like tomorrow. Some get medical discharged. Yeah. so so waiting waiting for the last year as you're trying to transition and trying to clean up all that mess or the last six months or even the last two years for somebody who's really self-aware and really thinks they're on their game, I'm telling you that's not when you do it. yeah I, I'm telling people right now you as soon as you join the military you sign up with fusion cell what what are you talking about tony sign up for fusion cell yeah so i can get you with an agent who gets to know you well why would that be important because he's going to get to know you and you're going to have a we'll have a relationship and he'll just check on you hey are you you thinking about doing another enlistment yeah hey are you thinking about going back to indiana is that really where you want to go yeah, I'd like to head back to Indiana. Because you got to put you got to be strategic about your exit strategy. You got to put time on your side. Because you know how a lot of these jobs are it it's done no differently and you guys, I'm talking to military guys. Well, to me, this part of corporate and the civilian workforce is done the same way in the civilian sector a lot of times that it it's done in the military. I was a chief I'm strategically moving people around the Air Force. I'm looking out for their careers. If my buddy calls me up and says, "Hey, I think this would be a, a good guy. Let's get him promoted," that's what we're doing. And and you got to do the same thing out here. You have to be strategic. And so the the it, as much lead time as we can we can get on the front side that allows us and you know, like he like say some young man tells me, "Hey, I think I want to go." I want to go to Boston. I want to go to Tennessee. Okay, is there a company you're thinking about? Is there some place you want to work down there? Put t- help me put time on my side. Help me set you up for success. Hey, there's three companies down there that I think would be great when I settle down, I want to go back there. And so these are the things we need to know. And the other thing I will tell you is that the things I'm learning out here when it comes to let's say like say some young man tells me, some young man or some woman tells me, I'm not sure what I want to do but I want to go back to school. I'm like, okay, might I offer cybersecurity? Oh, well, why cybersecurity? Because you know what? It's not going anywhere. It's a rapidly going, you know, it's it's going to be around a long time. The money is is going to be really good. And go, so since you've contacted me earlier, might I suggest you knock out these five certificates? How How much time do we have? This one's 13 weeks. This one's eight weeks. Your TA will pay for it. Your GI bill will cover it. We can probably add another zero because sometimes what I'm learning out here is having certain certificates and qualifications is more important than the damn degree. Yes, if that makes sense. What well, I can't, it, but we it can't do it rotates back at the last forth. minute. That's yeah. right. But we yeah. can't do it at the last minute. That's why. That's why you have to you, you get them on board early, just like the resiliency programs and all that other stuff. You 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 help them from cradle to grave. All the way through, you get them early, and you take care of them through while they're in, and that way they have a they have a better exit strategy on the way out. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, first program I've heard that actually does that. I give you guys big kudos because. Um, and now, if you can just bridge that divide of what I was talking about from oh, yeah. those military friendly and educate them on the the hard skills and soft skills and how that rung meets across. Holy crap! You've you've created now like the path and the yeah. probably the only path of course there probably probably be competitors listening to what you just shared anthony you know going hey man i can i can put this thing together i can do the same thing uh but hey that's the beauty of the whole thing in the and the uh, uh that's the, the way free it is world, right you know yeah, that's right yeah. challenge you you know yep. bring it on but yep. um I really appreciate you taking time and and sharing not only your military journey but of course what you're doing to help veterans today as they're they're making the transition. I know you don't look at it as far as the transition thing, but you know, it like all of us are going to transition at some point in our military career. And like you said, it's either going to be tomorrow because we didn't expect it, it's going to be 4 years at the end of our enlistment or 30 years or some time in between because we set that date ourselves, but we also may be surprised that the military created a date for us and and we need to go ahead and have some kind of exit strategy, a plan to move forward so that we're taken care of, our family's taken care of, you know, we got food on the table, we got a path forward. We're doing something we're passionate about. And I I really appreciate that what you guys are doing is doing having those conversations on the very front end to lay that path forward and, and allowing that individual as they grow within the military to even pivot and change based on new likes That's right new things that they're witnessing or experiencing um, and you're building a hell of a network while doing that by getting in contact yep. with you guys so yep. Tony I appreciate it um, I commend you guys for what you're doing wish you nothing but the best out there as well and uh, like I said once again thanks for coming on the show
1: hey Robert uh, Scott hey I really appreciate you let me come on and, and taking the time and listen to you know me just badger here or talk on, but uh, it's been an absolute (laughs) honor. And uh, thanks for your service also and everything you guys do uh, when it comes to continuing to uh, mentor and help mentor veterans and taking care of them. So I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. (laughs)